Every day we hear new half-truths and misconceptions about farming and our food supply. Some of these farm policy fallacies are pushed by special interest groups and farm policy critics. Others are driven by a fundamental misunderstanding of how our food is grown. Ultimately, bad ideas turn into bad policy, hurting farmers and our national food security. Welcome to Groundwork. I'm your host, Tom Sell. So today we're joined by Ray Starling, who served in the White House as a member of the President, President's Economic Council and as Chief of Staff to former Secretary of Agriculture, the Honorable Sonny Perdue. He's an expert in federal farm policy. He's also very experienced in the policy debates of Washington, D.C. And now he's written what is really a fantastic book called Farmers Versus Foodies, which will be released on December 1st. Actually, I think you can you can actually go online and get it now. But he's with us today. Thank you for joining us, Ray. Yeah, great to be here, Tom. And it's uh, hard for me not to say nice things about you just like you did me. I mean, Tom is definitely a person that many of us in D.C. have looked up to for many years and uh, just really appreciate his connections and his perspective. And uh, it's an honor to be with you today on ground Groundwork. Well, it's kind of you to say we love nerding out on on farm policy. And Ray, you're you're among the world's greatest nerds and, and, and a great friend. So this is really going to be fun. Maybe before we dive into policy, can you maybe just tell our audience a little bit more about your background from North Carolina? What was what it was like growing up on a on a family farm? Those things. Having grown up on a farm, and I'm just fortunate that my eldest brother is now running that farm. Uh, still yeah. getting plenty of supervision from my yeah. father, uh, and I think that's what farmers do right up until mm -hmm. until they no longer can. Uh, but that obviously shaped a ton of my ideas and expectations about agriculture, and and frankly, my career. Uh, so I, I was like some of your colleagues. I was active in FFA. I had a chance to be a national FFA officer, and that experience kind of has two sides. One is you get this phenomenal experience, but it often has a way of changing your life. And I saw really way back in the early 90s that for the future of ag, there were a lot of folks that were working on technical advances. Uh, you know, we had folks at the university that were going to help us figure out how to do things better. We, uh, we were going to get better on the yeah. scientific front and the technical front. But what I sort of picked up on was that the social pushback the legal pushback, the policy environment, we're all going to be treacherous places for us to figure out how to navigate. Yeah. Uh, that ended up being pretty prescient uh, as we fast forward, you know, 25, 30 years from then. You hit on one of what I think is one of the most important aspects of really American agriculture. It captures kind of the, the ethic, and that is always trying to do better. You mentioned that and just the way that that you were raised. Of course, you went up through the FFA. You mentioned just a bit about that. Would you talk about just kind of being trained up in advocacy uh, and, and maybe some of that background in FFA and how that served you well in this path toward D.C. and working with Senator Tillis and Secretary Perdue, uh, Gary Cohn and the, White, the, the Trump White yeah. House? You've been in some incredibly important places. Talk a little bit just about how FFA prepared you for that. Yeah, and I have to give some credit to 4-H, too. I grew up um, with my mom dragging me the public speaking events with 4-H. And at the time, you know, I thought they were okay. I didn't hate them. Uh, but now looking back at them, I'm like, wow, what I learned. Uh, and, and just think about that skill set. I mean, there's definitely a part of 4-H and FFA that is production-centered yeah. and, and really has you focus on developing more sort of core technical career skills. But for me, what I enjoyed was you know, learning how to speak in front of groups. Once you've been on a, a decent parliamentary procedure team, you understand how to run a meeting 
both in private, you know, an informal meeting, but also a formal meeting, which sometimes you have to be in. And, and those principles of recognizing minority views and all this kind of stuff and, you know, being on time and dressing the right way and having to plan. I mean, I, I remember in high school, I walked around with my Franklin planner. Everybody thought I was nuts, but like I had, alert. you know, I had it going on, man. I mean, I, I, I had <laughs> things to do and I had to prioritize my daily task list. Yes, sir. And, uh, you know, all that you get exposed to with FFA, but no question when the door closed years later and I was the guy at the head of the table, you know, knowing what to do in that situation, knowing how to call on different people and balance time. I mean, I hosted must have hosted 50 or 60 meetings at the White House where there was literally 10 or 15 people around the table. And my job was to, A, let's get something done. Let's agree. Let's mm-hmm. finalize something here. But let's also make sure everybody feels like they got to have their say. And that's hard when you're in an hour-long meeting. Yeah. Uh, but that's a skill I felt like I learned from, from my FFA and 4-H days. And so, frankly, FFA and 4-H laid the groundwork for, for a lot of that. Let's talk a little bit about this book, Farmers versus Foodies. Uh, it's published. It's available now, but it really captures. I, I just loved reading it because it captures a lot of the battles that, that we're facing in Washington D.C. with brilliant people, as you say, but people who maybe don't have the background or don't have the understanding of the challenges um, that are part of getting that that food from seed uh, uh, from the farm and from the dirt. Um, from the the challenges of husbandry and agriculture all the way through the supply chain uh, to the plate. We should never, I mean, this it's Thanksgiving week, right? And yeah, I think we, both say we should never take this for granted uh, because so much goes into it. The, the blood, sweat, tears, sacrifices of, of those who are putting their wealth at risk every year to make this crop. So I'm, I'm talking too much. This is about you. So why don't you just give us a little bit of an overview of, of what to expect from the book, why it was you wrote it. Talk a little bit more about that, and then we'll get into some of the details. Yeah, well, let me start with that title, which uh, is a, maybe a little, needs a little bit of uh, illumination. So the, the when I think of farmers, I mean, that's really just code word for all of the people that work across the agriculture industry. Um, yeah. I call us insiders in the book a lot because I think we are the group that has a capital at risk, you know, understands what it takes to grow food, have actually been involved in growing food or in some part of helping manage the supply chain or perhaps in the in the broader advocacy community. You know, the Aggies, if you will, lowercase a, not the kind yeah. that hang out in College Station, but the, <laughs> but literally, you know, Aggies. And we know who we are, right? Like right. we like to hang out. I mean, you know who the farmers are, who the Aggies yeah. are and who that allied industry group is. But when I use the term foodies, I don't necessarily mean, you know, folks that love food and love to cook, you know, quaint things in their mm-hmm. kitchen and sort of interesting meals. I, I don't really qualify in that category, but I, I like having friends that are so I can eat interesting things. Mm-hmm. But it's really the the critics uh, and, and, and the critics that are on the outside. I mean, certainly we have criticism. We lob it ourselves sometimes and, yeah. and, and pause there, Tom, to say, I don't think everything's perfect, right? I don't think we're blameless. I don't think we're on some white horse and can't improve. Uh, But I do think a lot of the ideas that the outsiders, the foodies have about what needs to be improved and why and how we improve it, I think they're just bad ideas. So again, the notion was how do these two things exist in the same place? I think there are really two big buckets. And of course, I break this out in several chapters in the book. But I think, A, there are things that are happening culturally 
in the background about the way we live today, uh, A, the way we think about, well, if I want my food this way, then it's America. I ought to be able to get it that way. In fact, Burger King told us that, right? Like, I want it my way or it's your way. We're going to give it to you however you want it. So there's that individualism thing that's being fed. Well, I, I want the food system the way I want it without regard to folks whose income is constrained or what that might mean for other parts of the world. Yeah. So you've got that sort of individualism and expressive individual cultural piece. I can go on Amazon and I can hit a button and I can have it at my door tomorrow. So if yeah. I've got that thought about procuring goods generally, and, and I've got this individualism going on and I don't really am not trained much to think about production because not only are my parents not farmers or my grandparents or grandparents, my parents and grandparents never worked in a factory. Right. I mean, this is this is some people's um, uh, experience in life. And yeah. so they just don't think about producing versus consumption. And so all of that kind of stuff and more is happening in the background. But then I think there are things that are happening in the foreground. And that's where. I feel like we've got the biggest risk. I mean, I don't think we can light a candle and fi fix culture, right? Like culture just, you know, there's sort of these forces Slow. that from time to time ebb and flow, right? Yeah. Um, but I do think these things that are working in the foreground, these organizations that literally exist to, and I've got a good friend that helps point out this word to me, the word is dismantle. You know, mm -hmm. if you've got a think tank or an advocacy group out there that says they want to dismantle modern agriculture. And so if you've got an advocacy organization that's actually out there thinking 24-7 about how to move the needle on their interest areas, then that's a tough environment for us to be in unless we're pushing back and competing against those ideas. So, so to summarize, and I know I've probably talked longer than I should about this. I get excited about it. This is good. When I first Keep started on. shopping the book idea kind of around and building it and working on it, I, I literally had a working title of farmers versus foodies and why the foodies are going to win. And a good friend said, are you sure you want to do that? You're going to make the farmers mad. <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't want to make them mad. So that, and then second, I don't think they can win. I mean, I, I think they yeah. can, but I don't think we can let them like that. That cannot happen for reasons I'm, I'm happy to get into. Yeah. But. Well, it's, it's, it's critical. And, you know, secretary Purdue, your former boss used to have uh a quote. In fact, you you raise it in the book oh, yeah. again that you know when when people's bellies are full or it goes something along these lines when That's when right. people are well fed they can have many many problems, uh, but when they're hungry uh, they focus on one problem. This is critical stuff to the to the orderly functioning of society. One one thing you hit on that I think is really interesting. You know we and I'm I'm with you. So 20 years ago I felt like in ag advocacy would we would complain that people would say oh. Gosh, people don't know where their milk comes from. You know, they go to the store and they think milk comes from a carton. Um, now that's that dynamic has has kind of changed. I mean, we still we take things for granted. That's that's still true. But now we have these kind of uh, foodie micromanagers wanting it to be grown, and they they want to know the producer that produced the milk. You talk a lot about the kind of emotional attachment to food and how this is kind of a glorious and beautiful thing that American consumers are becoming more knowledgeable of and attached to certain ways, things that are done in food production. But that also comes with some new political dynamics and, and risks. Would you just uh, talk about that uh, a little bit and this, this kind of how oh, the yeah. challenge has shifted over time? 
you did a great job summarizing it. I mean, I, I mean, I tell the stories of how we we literally had these communication campaigns where we went out into urban parts of the country and said, hey, why don't don't take ag for granted? Think more about us. And now fast forward, like you said, 20, 25 years and everybody's thinking more about us. And and they got these opinions that we're like, whoa, 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 whoa don't think that, you know, we, we got to address. And and so but really that tees up the question. So where does that come from? Why is it like that? Why Why does that thinking exist that way? Uh, and I think that's where you get into sort of some of these cultural things and then some of these advocacy things that that add together. But to, to your point, Tom, that that is a that almost being forgotten a couple of de decades ago yeah. was really a form of a compliment. Right. Yeah. Like it, it was really like I, I'm not worried about food security, at least no. in the United States, because yeah. that seems to be handled. And then a mat, you know, just think about what's happened with the explosion of new products on the shelves just in the last 20 or 25 years. So right. it's ironic then now that fast forward to now and people are more critical of that food system, which is and obviously I'm going to defend it. It's it's giving us exactly what we asked for. Uh, it, it's it's giving the, the, yeah. the country and the, the world to some extent, not as much as we like to take credit for. Uh, but it, but it's, it's, we're basically answering the call that's been given to us. And, yeah. and so my take on that is if the system wants something different, or if the world wants something different from the food system, then all you got to do is tell us, we can probably do it. Yeah. But don't say things like, we need a whole new system that has no elements that are even recognizable when compared to the current system. Like that's just mm -hmm. junk, right? Like that's yeah. not helpful to the conversation at all. And so, uh, so I don't know, we've kind of invited some of this, I think we've, we've, yeah. I, I don't really know what led to the, to the shift uh, to paying more attention. Uh, but now that it's here, you know, it's something different to contend with. The majority of the human population around the world is more concerned about needs. Uh, I just right. need the calories, need the protein. I need, I need to, to feed my kids, all that stuff. But what I love about the American system is we're kind of accommodating both. The American U.S. agricultural system, highly productive, is meeting the basic needs of the world. The most productive, efficient agricultural sector in the world. The, the, it's dynamic. It is the model for world's producers, the world's producers. We are also meeting all these, you know, kind of fun uh, needs, whether it's, you know, uh, or organic or, you know, knowing, being able to trace your food from the farm, kind of the whole farms or uh, model. It's a pretty good system. Hard to really rail against that, isn't it, uh, Ray? I think the best pushback against these arguments, the best moral position from which to think, why is this important, is exactly what you said about the United States is, is frankly not true in completely around the world. And, and in fact, as you would readily admit, I'm sure it's not true in every community across the Correct. United States. I mean, yeah. I look at median household income, uh, and I did not glance before this at Texas, but I know in North Carolina, which is you know a, a very diverse economy, our median household income is still around the 50, 55,000 mark. That's a household. That's not an individual. Yeah. So, you know, we, we've got to maintain a system that can do both, but we've certainly got to remember there are a lot of people that need the basic, you know, the basic necessities. It's, it's Absolutely. that quote. I mean, it's, yeah. 
you know, a person would a, a person with no food has one problem and a person with plenty of food has plenty of problems or yeah. some paraphrase of that. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your chapter seven, declining political clout. By the way, I'm, I'm with your friend who advised you to, to amend the title or shorten the title uh, yeah. so you, <laughs> to eliminate the why the foodies will win. Uh, but you 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 talk about this declining uh, political clout, and it it is a reality. And I think it's it's more complex these days. On the one hand, um, what I find in Congress is so few folks are connected to agriculture now, or have a background or real history, that but they're humble enough uh, that they realize they don't know what all goes on to this, and so they're more willing to. On the one hand, and I think that bears out in like the the record final votes uh, on the farm bill, greater than 80% of both the House and the Senate in the last 2018 farm bill ended up voting for the thing. And maybe maybe that that, that goes to that that reality. Um, uh, but at the same time, the, the, the political challenges getting to that final point were perhaps more uh, uh, difficult than, than ever faced before. It is a complex puzzle to put together. But would you talk a little bit about, about just chapter seven and and your uh, uh, your your focus on on kind of the political clout and necessities of the agricultural community. Yeah, so Tom, on that notion of of political clout, and I, you know, it's true in D.C. and it's also true across the country. I think there's two lenses through which to look. One is anecdotally, what have been our experiences, what have been our observations, what's kind of our non scientific take right. on what's happening uh, with regard to political clout for agriculture. And, and, you know, Tom, you and your colleagues, you all have conversations with folks and you understand, uh, gosh, I got to educate this 24-year-old staffer uh, who's staffing a house member of fill in the blank. I, I got 20 minutes to teach them everything I know about American agriculture. We've all got examples like that. We, we've got these one-off experiences where it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, really, this is they don't know anything. Uh, I think that's happening more and more. I mean, I think most of the lobbying community on the ag side would tell you they're having more and more experiences like that. Yeah. But then I was surprised to see there's also very good scientific data. There's also very defensible numbers that say, particularly since World War II, somewhat tracking the, the narrowing number of people in production agriculture overall uh, and in fact, maybe doing a little better than that, actually. But, you know, to go from a 20 percent, a Congress that was 20 percent agrarian yeah. uh, after World War II to one that's only three to five percent agrarian today. Well, that's that's clearly a demise in political clout. I mean, yeah. having a House Ag Committee that you can't even fill all the slots on, uh, that's clearly a demise uh, in, in ag activity or ag clout. Yeah. Having a farm bill that. Nobody really cares much as much about the farm policy as they do about the food stamp policy. That's, again, another sign of, of waning clout. Yeah. And so, you know, we can't stop there, though, Tom. And I probably could have talked about this more. But just like what we talked earlier about the intellect that surrounds our state capitals and our, our policy atmospheres across the state or our microcosms across the country, rather, um, there's also this big community that surrounds the capital. There's this policy, you know, public policy community. Uh, yeah. And what I'm also worried about is not only are we beginning to have fewer and fewer numbers up and down the halls of Congress, we don't really play well, I don't think, in that think tank 
advocacy organization space compared to our critics. I, I think they are positioning themselves to move the needle better than we are. Um, and so that that's a concern. I mean, that's obviously something that's this is another place where we're going to feel pressure in the coming years and, and already are. I think it's such an important point. And, and you raise some of these issues in the book and some of the strategy of, of those uh, on more of the critics or the dismantler type of side, uh, both a legal strategy, a lobbying strategy, there's there's a lot to it. So uh, your words on on the political clout are, are really wise and in a in a timely and, and, and intelligent warning of sorts uh, to agriculture that we've got to get uh, our act together. I will say this, Ray, you know, even your work uh, in, in the Purdue administration at USDA with the onset of, of what became the COVID-19 pandemic in deeming agriculture a, a critical industry infrastructure. Uh, I'm sure that wasn't easy. I'm sure there were incredible high level discussions about, you know, where, where do we uh, say uh, these certain sectors you've got to keep running because without you, uh, our nation will, will will come to a halt. Um, I, I'd love to 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 unpack that a little bit more uh, with you one day. But these are the kind of challenges and and places where you uh, have just done so much good for agriculture through the years. Well, and think about think about COVID. I mean, I'm glad you brought it up, Tom, because I was literally in a conversation this week with a absolute insider out of DC, great person. But just in casual conversation, made the comment about something akin to, oh, yeah, COVID showed us how the food supply system was broken. Right. And and like I like have to grab the seat of my chair to stay seated because I'm like, Are, that is so disconnected from reality that it's comical. I mean, when you shut down where half of the people in the United States get their food, that is restaurants, yeah. And and you start demanding all of that food in the retail chain. Yeah, it's going to take us a few weeks to transition <laughs> from restaurants to retail. But but that's about how long it took. I mean, in about six weeks, we had product. There was yeah. never an issue in this country of a lack of food. It was just this question of is it in the wrong channel? Can we get to it? Can we safely move it somewhere else? That's and right. yet this mantra now is fueled Oh, well, COVID showed the food system was broken. I mean, I, we hadn't used this phrase oh on here, but one of the chapters I'm most proud of, Tom, is yeah. the, the Humpty Dumptyism chapter. Yeah. And it's basically where I make fun of all the people that say the food system's broken. Uh, and it's going to take all the king's horses and all the king's men to put it back <laughs> together again, right? And all the people at Harvard and Yale and Vermont. Yeah. They they des they deserve the uh they deserve the criticism uh because even in this, this is a great example where we're all focused on the many problems this kind of nitpicking from the side the fact is the the food supply was intact and, and the farmers on That's up right. through the supply chain kept it going uh so no one uh or, or no no sector no area of the u.s had the one problem which is we That's don't right. have any food that's right. Uh, so pretty amazing. All right. Lightning round here, Ray. I, I, I want to talk just a little bit about one, one of our kind of current topics, and that that is this COP27, this this notion of of that we need to have more policy bent around uh, the reality of of climate change. And, and oftentimes that that discussion falls to uh, agriculture or maybe it begins and ends with agriculture. I don't know quite how to phrase it. 
but the Wall Street Journal had had a really interesting article, you know, with this approval of at the conclusion of COP27, this approval of uh, uh, a means of providing financial assistance to uh, the poorer nations of the world. But the Wall Street Journal had a, had a line, the religion of climate change is progressives penance for the sins of being prosperous. We have, as a nation, uh, uh, as Americans, we've, we've known great privileges. Um, but th- could you just talk a little bit about this, this kind of, uh, I, I love this phrasing, the, the progressives uh, penance for their prosperity. Do you see that driving some of the actions of kind of the foodie, uh, the broad foodie class that you talk about? Yeah, what I what I take away from there, I mean, I, I'm always nervous about words like conservative and progressive because I think it suggests that you can put people in buckets on these issues based on their political leanings. And I my right. my take is that's I do think there are some correlations. I don't think there's causation, and I don't think that uh, construct works all the time. And so I, I might quibble with the with the progressive notion, but what I will tell you that I liked about the Wall Street Journal piece was that it it refers to the almost the religious furor around these topics, and and yeah. that to me is akin to what we're seeing drive some of the conversation in the ag and food space. It's almost like a faith based spirituality of I'm going to go fix the food system. Uh, and again, this, this goes into that cultural stuff of, you know, we're just in a different place culturally in the United States than we were in the, obviously in the 18 and 1900s. Yeah. And yeah. so the, the, the soil in, a, in an increasingly secular country is in my view, very fertile for, well, I, I got, I need another cause. I, I got to save people. I mean, and this is, pretty much preaching so my apologies in advance or maybe maybe my lack of apologies in advance but i gotta save people some way and i don't think about that the way we did as a country in the 18 and 1900s and so now i'm gonna save the climate or i'm gonna save them from you know a food system that's ruining uh ruin ruining the planet and so i I love that acknowledging that uh framework if you will i think they also point out the hypocrisy uh, of the position of, of the wealthy countries, you know, sort of pointing to the developing countries and saying, you know, we, we can't, uh, we have to help you guys, you know, you can't, you can't innovate on your own, or you can't find your own solutions, we, we've got to right. kind of come help you, uh, which yeah. is the antithesis of, uh, of, of kind of, I think, what they're trying to say. Uh, and then I think a third piece is really then, what about trade-offs, right? Like uh, Jack Bobo does a great job talking about this, that sure, and you and I've talked about it, Tom, we can do things differently, but there are going to be trade-offs. And and for you to look me in the face, at least on the food topic, maybe a little less on the climate change and energy topic, but if you can look me in the face and say, hey, I'm okay with actually increasing food insecurity in some parts of the world so that I get you know, food grown the way I'm comfortable with it being grown. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that I think that says a lot about you. And so, uh, again, just a thought. I know we're on lightning round, and I'm not being very lightning like here. <laughs> but if, if there's anything to take away from this, it is we actually have the moral high ground here. And I think yeah. often we are on defense, 
and we are on the receiving end of the pointing finger. And in reality, it is the green revolution. It is the ag productivity of today that has made room for all these other debates because we go back to that quote, you know, when man has food, he has many problems. When he doesn't have food, he only has one problem. And, and I think there's just a, we can't forget that. We got to have some umph and some spring in our step because we actually have the moral high ground here. Uh, that, that's important. That's awfully wandering. I know. Okay. You've, we've, we've talked a lot about uh, the issues and I, I could go on forever on this, but maybe let's just turn it to a positive. What are some issues you see where the farm the foodies can work together? Yeah, great question. And, and fortunately, I don't think that list is short. I mean, I don't think that's hard. I, I do think there's a framework or a mental, a mental framework that we in agriculture have got to get out of. And that is, and I'm sure Tom, I mean, I've done it too here at the chamber. I'm sure you've been at meetings over the course of the last couple of months and everybody wants to talk about the farm bill. Like farm bill comes up in 2023. Let's talk about the farm bill. (laughs) Well, there's no doubt the farm bill is important, right? But I mean, the main thing the farm bill does is it, it sets those reference prices. It figures out crop insurance and it allocates a little bit of money here and there, right? Uh, our biggest problems in agriculture cannot be solved, at least the way the Congress is set up now jurisdictionally. Our biggest inhibitance to growth and our biggest inhibitant to actually making progress on some of the criticisms that may be right about our use of resources in ag are, are not approachable through the farm bill, other than some of this incentive-based stuff that, that we're seeing more and more experimentation with. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that I met with a group of agricultural chemical executives yesterday uh, who literally have been hogtied by the way advocacy organizations have leveraged the Endangered Species Act. So they've got products that they've spent $100 million on to bring to market. Our farmers want those products. They are better than the products that they will replace in terms of an environmental footprint. They are more effective. They can be applied at lower rates. We are smarter about how to do that now. And yet that product cannot be deployed because of litigation relying upon the Endangered Species Act. We can't fix that problem in the farm bill. That's going to require, yeah. you know, differently. May not, may not even be able to fix it in Congress generally, right? I mean, yeah. we could. Congress could obviously write a law that helps us with this. But, but can it? I don't know. It certainly doesn't seem like it can. Think about the labor issue. Uh, We've talked about this for years, that one of the principal limiting factors of productivity and profitability in agriculture, particularly for labor-intensive agriculture, is access to a willing workforce, a capable, safe, reliable workforce. That has only gotten harder over the course of the last two or three years. And then I think about regulation of innovation. I mean, go back to the, it's a little bit of the ESA piece, but when I say regulation of innovation, I'm thinking about the deployment of not just GMO, but now genetically edited uh, crops. I'm thinking about crops that are really sort of paired with, you know, a certain applicant. You've got a chemical application that goes with a gene that happens to be in the seed. And yet those two regulatory systems are totally separate, not even parallel. I mean, they're like stovepipes that are crooked and turned in two different buildings. And yet you've got to be on the, you've got to track those together if you're trying to bring a product to market uh, that relies on a new chemical innovation and a new genetic innovation. 
And so to me, those are the kinds of things that even if you're a foodie, you ought, you ought to help us work on that, right? Like if, if you want organic agriculture, maybe, maybe a lot of that's not going to be as mechanical. Maybe it's not going to involve as much uh, pesticide application. And so, well, that means we got a labor issue there, right? You got to help us with it. Yeah. And so I, I think I think there are a ton of issues that we can work on together, uh, but, but we've got to step up and and figure out how to have those conversations. I love it, Ray. You're you're so good at, at synthesizing the big picture and that that bleeds through in your book. I wanted to ask you, what is what is the real difference between liver pudding and liver mush? But we're going to have to save that for <laughs> <laughs> for another episode, Ray. Firing minds really... want to know. They're both good, is all I can say. I would say the <laughs> same thing that foodie. I would say about Texas barbecue and North Carolina barbecue. They are both good. Okay, man, I, I tell you that uh, loving having a love uh, of of liver anything to the extent that you would put it in your book really gives you the foodie bona fides uh, in my book. Uh, Ray, this was a great conversation. You know, as we always say on this on this uh, on this podcast, supporting our farmers and our food production is so vitally important. We need to be having fact-based conversations about how farm policy supports agriculture. Ray, your book, Farmers versus Foodies, is an excellent read. I recommend it to everyone who's listening. If you're a student of agriculture, if you're a foodie, uh, if you're one involved in production agriculture, you need to read this book. That's going to do it for this episode of Groundwork. I'm Tom Sell.